Are you eager to learn more about law? Me too. Hello, my name is Sarah Chayo. Welcome to A Question of Law, a podcast created for law enthusiasts who want to increase their knowledge and deepen their understanding of the law. Our guests, legal professionals chosen from an array of legal proficiencies, will explain to us the fundamental principles of a specific topics in the areas of expertise. Then, they will educate us on new legal developments in their fields in the form of a recent case law or new legislation. They'll share with us their opinions on the ramifications of these latest advances. Finally, we'll talk about their career path and uncover some great insights about their lives and experiences. So, if you want to feed your curiosity, enrich your mind and get inspired. Take a break, sit back, and remain tuned in. On this edition of A Question of Law, we will be talking with Vicky Price, a human rights lawyer, about the impact of COVID-19 on human rights. As of today, the 17th of November 2020, almost 1.4 million people have already died of COVID-19 in the world and over 52,000 in the UK. The numbers continue to rise. Saving lives has become a priority in most countries around the world. To face this unprecedented crisis, governments have put in place emergency measures to slow down the transmission of the virus. Still, some of these restrictions have significant ramifications on our most fundamental freedoms. The pandemic has exacerbated the vulnerability of the least protected in society. For some, the public health crisis has also become an economic one, but we will address that issue in another episode. Nine months on, from the onset of the first lockdown, we have learned that the efficiency of the response measures relies on a collective effort. To build up trust, governments must show transparency, proportional responsiveness and accountability to their people. However, such a scrutiny is only possible in places that respect and value human rights. This episode offers to look at the impact of the COVID-19 response on NHS workers and vulnerable groups. Then, we'll ask Vicky to assess the suitability of this response in the UK and Russia before exploring whether those measures are likely to have lasting negative implications for her rights and freedoms. Finally, we'll get to know Vicky better and she reveals great pearls of wisdom drawn from her insightful experience. Hello Vicky and welcome to A Question of Law. I'm delighted to have you on this podcast. Thank you very much for the invitation. <laughs> Vicky, you are a brilliant human rights lawyer with 20 years of experience working for diverse national and international organizations. Since September last year, you have established yourself as an independent human rights consultant. But besides your consultancy work, you are also a podcaster and a mentor. Your career in the field of human rights has taken you to work extensively with the United Nations the British Foreign and Commonwealth Office, the Council of Europe, the Scottish Human Rights Commission, the British government and numerous non-governmental organisations. Your roles have been wide-ranging, from monitoring state compliance with international human rights instruments 
to advising governments on strategic interventions. You have also been a university lecturer and have trained academics, judges and diplomats, a campaigner and a lobbyist for human rights at heart. You have published a significant number of articles and delivered numerous conferences around the world. A prolific writer too, in the last two years you have written at least three very significant reports on human rights. Early in your career, you specialized in immigration law, but you later became an expert, or shall I say, an authority, on the subject of prisoners' rights, penal reform, and dignity behind bars. Needless to say that you are a very busy person, and yet you have kindly accepted my invitation to share with us your knowledge, wit, and wisdom. I could have asked you to talk about many human rights issues, but when I learned that you had recently finished writing a report on the human rights impact assessment of COVID-19 response in Russia, I thought this was too good an opportunity. Therefore, I ask you to draw some comparisons between the measures taken by the Russian and the British governments to fight COVID-19 and their implications on human rights. But before we get into this assessment, could you please briefly describe to us what human rights are and how they are protected? Thank you very much and thank you for that very kind introduction. So where do we start with, with human rights? Well, I think we have to say that human rights are basically fundamental rights and freedoms that belong to each and every single one of us. And they apply no matter where you're from or what you believe in, regardless of sex, age, nationality. And human rights have particular characteristics, that they are universal, so they belong to every single one of us, every single person, that they are inalienable, that they can't actually be taken away from us that they are indivisible and interdependent, that governments you know, shouldn't be able to pick and choose which rights are respected, and that they are on a non-discriminatory basis, so that human rights should be afforded to one and all and not sort of on the basis of prejudice there. What I should also perhaps say is that some rights are, or human rights are absolute, that's to say freedom from torture, um, no one to be held in slavery or servitude. Some rights are limited, that means that in limited circumstances, so the rights can be, be restricted. And then some rights are actually qualified. So that's to say that on certain grounds, so for example, public health, national security, the rights can be restricted in those respects. Basically, the main point to say is that, that human rights are based on values of dignity, of fairness, equality and respect. That's the sort of overarching architecture, if you like, for, for human rights. In terms of how they're actually protected, they are protected really under a body of law called international human rights law. And that is made up of various different elements. Firstly, human rights treaties, to which states actually sign up to them and therefore are legally obliged to um, respect, to protect and fulfil the rights in those treaties. So the UK will have signed certain international treaties the main ones are the ones that we know, the International Covenant on Civil and Political Rights, for example, the UN Convention Against Torture. Um, and then there are regional treaties as well. So in the UK, the, the UK has signed up to the European Convention on Human Rights, but there are other treaties. And then the final bit is that of soft law. So these are non-binding on states, non-binding regulations or principles 
often coming out of the UN, they are not binding, but they do carry political weight. So that's how human rights are protected on a sort of international and regional scale. Very complete answer. Thank you very much. As you've just explained, uh, some rights then can be restricted or limited under exceptional circumstances, and you took the example of public health. Now, could you tell us a little more about the conditions that need to be met to justify such a constraint on our rights, and uh, whether there are any safeguards against abusive restrictions? So I think the first point, the first and most important point to make is that our starting point should always be that we live in a society that actually respects, protects and and affords us our human rights. And any persons should be the exception and not the norm. So I think I need to say that as our starting point, that we're in a place that's a rights respecting society. But as you rightfully say, Sarah, under international human rights law, states can restrict or to use a sort of legal term to derogate from some of our rights and freedoms in very limited circumstances. That said, there are certain rights which are deemed to be, quote unquote, non-derogable. That's to say that states cannot in any circumstances actually withhold those rights from us. And those are the ones that you would ordinarily think of. The right to life, freedom from torture and cruel and degrading treatment, slavery or servitude, the principle of non-refoulement, so sending somebody back to a country where they might be at risk. Some of the, you know, these rights are non-derogable, so states cannot take them away from us. Equally, um, economic and social and cultural rights, those actually remain in effect even during a state of, of emergency. So those are things like the rights to food, to health, housing, water. There's nothing in the international human rights treaties which affords states the right to restrict those um, in certain times. Mm-hmm. In terms of the conditions, so when can states actually pull away from or withdraw those rights? Well, International human rights law does permit derogations. Um, now, under the European Convention on Human Rights, if we're, we're sitting here in the UK, so that's the kind of convention that, that we've signed up to, the actual wording is that it says it can derogate in times of war or other public emergency threatening the life of the nation to the extent strictly required by the exigencies of the situation. So that's a pretty sort of wide and elastic kind of definition when states can actually derogate from certain um, rights. The European Convention on Human Rights helps us to unpack that um, in terms of what it actually means, a a public emergency threatening the life of the nation. Well, um, one case, Lawless in Ireland, which was around terrorism and anti-terrorism measures, kind of looked to that definition and said that it basically constitutes an exceptional situation of crisis or emergency, which affects the whole population, constitutes a threat to the organised life of the community of which the state is composed. So we're looking for something which has a very high threshold in terms of of a state of emergency. And as I say, the the European Convention on Human Rights has looked mainly around the kind of counter-terrorism, terrorism space to help us to understand what public emergencies might be. Where we are now in the midst of a pandemic, whether sort of COVID-19 actually meets this high test, Well, in my view, it it certainly does, that the virus, the pandemic, actually poses an immediate and a real threat to the fabric of society, and it has the potential to kill many thousands, and it can damage irreparably the the economy and and overrun health services. So I think we would say that we are in a time of public emergency, threatening the life of the nation, and therefore, you know, derogation, states can derogate um, if they want. Mm -hmm. And finally, in terms of the safeguards, what's in place to make sure that the governments 
and authorities don't act at will. Certainly, international human rights law provides for safeguards within the derogation framework. So principally, the any restrictions have to be time limited. So they should be for a, of a temporary measure and not for the, for the long haul. That any restrictions should be based on law and grounded in law, that they should be proportional. So that's in relation to the scope and the duration and the geographical coverage, and that they should be non-discriminatory so that any restrictions, any derogations of our rights should not target a particular group in particular. I think those are the key safeguards that I would say are in place in terms of derogating from, from rights. So this is a great description of the framework required for state to derogate from our rights. And you made a reference to the principle of non-discrimination. However, based on the report you wrote on Russia on the one hand and the UK response to the pandemic on the other, it appears that COVID-19 has negatively impacted a comparable range of vulnerable groups in both countries. I have singled out a few of them. Could you tell us to what extent the fundamental rights of the medical staff, the elderly, the detainees and women and children have been affected during the pandemic? Certainly, I can look to those groups. I mean, just a few points to make by way of introduction to this. That certainly, and I'm very unfortunately, the measures which have been taken not only by our UK government, but other governments around the world have had an adverse impact on vulnerable groups, marginalized groups, and those who have sort of traditionally left behind. And certainly, the report that I authored on, on Russia showed evidence that certain groups have fared worse than others during the pandemic and have been left behind. And as I just mentioned before that, you know, human rights law works on a framework of equality and non-discrimination. So we have to bear that in mind when we're looking at these vulnerable groups. Mm-hmm. Um, so if we turn first, as you asked, to look at key workers and medical staff, we know that around the world, medical staff, doctors, nurses, and other healthcare professionals are and continue to be really at the forefront of fighting a pandemic. And the work that they're doing is inherently dangerous and and they work in very perilous conditions and situations and are at greater risk getting COVID-19. And there are big challenges, not only in Russia and the UK, but around the world in securing the, the right PPE, protective equipment and delivering care in a safe way. In the Russia context, from the report that I that I wrote, Well, basically, the healthcare system there has been in crisis for many years. The the system that they have now is a decrepit system, which they inherited from the Soviet times. And medical professionals there worked in very difficult conditions and continue to do so. 12-hour shifts, quarantined in hospitals with their fellow co-workers. And there were very serious concerns about inadequate PPE and difficult working conditions. But the the authorities there did try to offer financial compensation to medical workers and their families if a family member died as a result of working in in the healthcare industry. And in the UK context? Similar issues as well here in in the UK in terms of access to PPE long hours and stress. And and there were calls uh, by leading bodies such as the Royal College of Nursing and the British Medical Association to ensure the urgent supply of PPE to to frontline workers who were dealing with that. And the stats are really quite worrying. By July 2020, more than 500 health and social care workers had died from COVID-19. So really, you know, we're seeing that they really are at risk in terms of their health and and well-being. Mm -hmm. 
So how does that relate to the human rights section and Title II? So if we look at what the state is obliged to do under human rights law, you know, this does engage both in Russia and the UK, it engages a certain number of rights, principally the right to life. Mm -hmm. So under international human rights law, states have a positive duty to safeguard the lives of those in its jurisdiction. And that includes, you know, people who are working in the public health care industry and, and services. So there is a positive duty on states to take steps and practical action to actually protect their lives. And there's also a procedural obligation upon states as well to, to fully investigate any loss of life. And equally bound within that is the right to health as well, the international human rights law places a duty on states to provide an effective framework in which individuals can enjoy a right to health. Yes, absolutely. And this will definitely apply to other frontline or key workers. Mm, Yeah, absolutely. Unfortunately, we won't have time to go through every group. However, there is one group that I'd like you to talk about in particular because they've been very negatively and significantly impacted by COVID-19, and this is the elderly. Yeah, now certainly the elderly have had have had a very, very difficult sort of time during the pandemic. And, and I mean, I think to say at the outset, the UN Secretary General said in May of 2020 that the response to COVID-19 has to respect the rights and dignity of older people. And we know that older people are at a greater risk of contracting COVID-19. But sadly, I think the, the response from authorities and governments around the world has been, in my view, excuse me, pretty catastrophic. And certainly in the UK, I would say nothing short of a national scandal. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you want me to talk about the Russia context or the UK context. Well, could you briefly talk about both of them? Yeah, no, certainly. So in, in the Russia context... The authorities there really tried to take some early steps to protect older people. In March of 2020, they issued a self-quarantine order. And I think the um, age threshold I think was 65, if I'm not mistaken, to quarantine at home. But they also took soft measures to try and cocoon the population by providing relief payments as an incentive to stay at home. They also took some measures to try to limit the freedom of movement of um, older people so that they were not sort of out and about. So actually what they did was they suspended the right to free travel on public transport for the over 65, so they couldn't actually easily get around. Mm -hmm. In the UK context, we've seen a great deal of issues around the treatment of older people within care homes principally. Statistics are difficult to come by or not always consistent, but um, an Amnesty International report which looked specifically at the issue of the treatment of the elderly under the pandemic, Mm -hmm. they cited that between the 2nd of March to the 12th of June of this year, there were 18,562 deaths in care homes, which is a staggering number. And what contributed to this was a lot of hospital discharges to care homes, sending people back to care homes when they were not being tested, a lack of testing of the staff and the residents, And then the issue around the poor supply or lack of supply of PPE. We also have seen in care homes that there were do not resuscitate notices put on records of elderly people there. And these were applied in a a very blanket fashion. There were also do not convey to hospital decisions being made, all sort of out with consent or discussion with family members and indeed the individual themselves. We also saw that family members were unable to visit loved ones. So really a very, very kind of challenging and difficult situation in in the UK context and where we might see quite a number of human rights abuses and, and human rights being engaged. 
Yes, it's likely that we'll soon see lawsuit being grounded on on breaches of the European Convention of Human Rights or the Human Rights Act here in the UK. Mm. Now, there's another group particularly at risk of human rights uh, infringement. I'm talking about the detainees. What have you been able to observe regarding this group? Yeah, I mean, certainly, I think, again, people in prison or people deprived of their liberty, the state has a, a huge special obligation, I would say, um, to protect their lives when they're in their custody. So again, we see a potential engagement under Article 2 of the European Convention on Human Rights. This community of people are at particular risk and particularly vulnerable in the closed setting because of the overcrowding and their generally poor health. And I should say that the right to health doesn't stop at the prison mm -hmm. gates. And under human rights law and under soft law, people in prison enjoy the same standards of healthcare as those in the outside world. So that's kind of just to make that point at the outset. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's certainly an important point to remember. Well, Russia has a slightly different sort of penal system that they have people in what's called penal colonies, which is akin to sort of barracks um, where they house a number of prisoners. In Russia, they did make some attempts to try to decongest the, the pretrial prison population by way of an amnesty bill, but it didn't go very far. The real problem in Russia was around immigration detention centers, which was of grave concern. The conditions there were very poor and detainees had no access to the outside world or little communication with the outside world. Again, there were issues in the Russian prisoner state, if I can put it like that, in terms of access to PPE. In certain places in April of this year, the prison service announced that actually people in prison had to buy their own face masks, given an internal shortage, which is, you know, wrong on so many accounts. And what happened in the UK? In, in the UK context, well, basically in March of this year, um, lockdown restrictions were put in place in the prison estate. But the, the government's response here was a, a difficult one or, uh, because they didn't actually differentiate between different types of custodial settings between children, women and men. But in fact, in terms of numbers, the number of deaths in the prisoner state actually fell below what Public Health England had projected. But we saw that prison visits actually ceased in March of 2020, sort of towards the end. So family visits actually stopped and there was a sort of blanket ban. Time out of cells was hugely limited to 30 minutes a day. So we saw a lot of people in prison being put in solitary confinement of between 22 and 23 hours a day, including in young offender institutions. Wow. So real sort of challenges for managing the um, people in prison during the time of the pandemic. There were some measures taken to try to release prisoners early under early release measures, but very small numbers, not to the volume that I think prison campaigners had hoped for. And what about the right to access justice? So in terms of access to justice, I think we have, have seen a lot more of a move towards, uh, I'm talking about now the UK context, sort of, but actually also in Russia as well, sort of remote justice. The criminal justice system have had to kind of turn very quickly to try to adapt and flex to the new environment. So we've seen that um, there are now many remote hearings that the courts and tribunal systems have actually sort of moved to video and audio for hearings. And I think I, when I was doing research for the podcast, that the courts and tribunals, over 30,000 hearings have been conducted using a new cloud video platform across the Crown and Magistrates Courts. So there have been moves to try to kind of ensure that justice has not stopped and not slowed down too much. 
But of course, that brings challenges with it in terms of ensuring that there's public participation and that, you know, technology doesn't fail, no digital exclusion issues. So, so that's what we've seen in terms of how criminal justice communities try to adapt to, to this. Mm-hmm. And finally, what about women and children? How have they been impacted? So women and children have, have most definitely been left behind in terms of the pandemic, and it's had a really far-reaching and disproportionate impact in every sphere for women and girls in the health uh, sector, economy, reproductive rights, employment issues. But to kind of just highlight a few, for women, I think there are two things that I would really highlight. The risk of violence and abuse has really shot up for women and girls. And there's been talk about a shadow pandemic in terms of domestic abuse. We've seen not only in the UK, but all over these stay-at-home orders, which has actually forced many women and girls into lockdown with their abusive partners, be it intimate partners or family members or carers, to the degree that the UN has estimated that six months of lockdown could result in about 31 million more domestic abuse cases worldwide. Mm-hmm. And we've seen calls to helplines, sort of domestic abuse helplines, reportedly doubling in some countries around the world. And certainly we saw that we've seen that in Russia and in the UK. For, for women and girls, it's been a, a very difficult time. And then also the economy as well. Women have borne the brunt of socioeconomic impact. They're now in poverty more. They're having to rely more on public services and social security. So that's been a grave impact for women and girls. And children? So children, certainly, yeah. I mean, there, there, there's been, in terms of the, the human rights impacts, have been really far-reaching and very long-term. To highlight a few, obviously, principally, the right to education has been interrupted. We've seen both in in the UK and elsewhere that children's education has been fractured, I think is the best way to put it. And children are losing out on essential education opportunities. When children have been at home, there have been issues about whether or not they can actually access the teaching properly. So the digital exclusion and the digital divide has become very apparent there's increased risks of children being subjected to sexual exploitation, child marriage, and those children who've been left orphaned if their parents have died from COVID-19 are at greater risk and vulnerable to trafficking and sexual exploitation. And then there are particular groups of children who might be at special risk, so refugee, migrant, displaced children. Yes, unfortunately. Now to come back to more general rights and freedoms, we understand that in exceptional circumstances, such as in the midst of a pandemic, governments must pass laws quickly to respond to rapidly evolving situations. Yet these laws, enacted under the cover of protecting lives, can have dire consequences on more general freedoms, such as the freedom of movement, the freedom of speech, and the freedom of assembly. Could you help us understand the conundrum between protecting the population against an immediate lethal danger and making sure to refrain from human rights, disproportionate or even illegal infringements? So, so certainly I think what I can say is that the legislation and the guidance that's come in place has had serious incursions on our rights and freedoms. Um, and I think we are seeing a real risk of erosion of our rights in the medium and longer term. And there's a risk that these measures will allow government overreach well beyond the public health imperative. Mm-hmm. And absolutely, you're right to mention that some of our fundamental freedoms are definitely being impacted. And governments have used the pandemic actually as an opportunity to clamp down on these freedoms in the name of public health and the pandemic, but they've been used for slightly more sinister purposes. So to mention the ones that you do, freedom of movement, certainly 
under international human rights law, we are allowed the right to move freely within a territory and to enter our own country and of nationality and to leave the country. But but that right is not absolute and can be restricted on certain grounds, including on public health grounds, if it's deemed to be necessary in a democratic society. Mm-hmm. So we've seen that both in Russia and in the UK, where our travel has been limited, our movement has been limited. And certainly in Russia, there has been extensive surveillance technology used to ensure sorry, that they were complying with the containment measures there. In terms of freedom of expression, I think that we can say that the measures in place has cast a very long shadow over freedom of expression. It's a fundamental right, uh, both under international and regional human rights law. But again, we've seen it being stamped on or trampled upon in certain countries. In March, in Russia, they criminalised fake news or antivirus laws, which was used to silence dissenting voices against those people who were criticising the government's response to the pandemic. So um, they actually instituted an offence of disseminating fake news. And it was used in a very targeted way and has had a chilling effect on journalists who would prefer to self-censor than be at risk of these fake news laws. Uh, So it was being used in a a worrying way there. And finally, freedom of peaceful assembly and association. Again, this is a fundamental right, um, and it provides an opportunity for individuals, for all of us to participate in the democratic process, for our voices to be heard. Um, And under international human rights law, peaceful assemblies must be protected in public and private spaces, and any restrictions should be strictly necessary, proportionate, time-limited, lawful and subject to review. Yet, that's not been the case. And again, if I look to the kind of Russia context, these antivirus laws have been used to prevent public protests. So, for example, in May of this year, a a popular vlogger dialed himself as a COVID dissident was actually detained before a large public protest. And of course, they used the antivirus laws as a excuse for doing that. Also, the police in Moscow detained journalists and a writer who were holding very peaceful single-person pickets, you know, but using that legislation. So I think, you know, there's a real danger that the pandemic is providing a, a cloak or under which authorities can, can stamp down on these important fundamental freedoms. Yes, absolutely. But taking into account the points that you've made so far, do you believe that post-COVID-19, we'll be able to recover the same level of protection enshrined in our civil liberties as we had pre-COVID-19? Or do you think that our rights have already been permanently eroded? So I would like to, to remain positive, I think. And I think that, you know, there's a lot of talk about recovering better from the pandemic and a lot of sort of opportunity for us to think about our society. And I would like to think that we will will return to a a rights-respecting society post-COVID, it will always be open to states to use emergency legislation where they have to. But often emergency legislation made in haste doesn't make for the best law or doesn't make for good law. I think there are dangers of bringing it into the constitutional framework and a real risk that temporary measures can become permanent measures. So I don't think that we will lose our rights permanently, but what I think is that we need to ensure that they're are checks and balances in place to ensure that any incursion on our rights are reviewed on a regular basis, that there is parliamentary oversight of these measures. 
internally, but also that there is regional and international oversight as well through human rights bodies. That any emergency legislation that is brought into place, that there are what's called sunset clauses, so that they are not sort of in, on the statute books indefinitely. So that's what I would like to see going forward in terms of of how how we how we manage this, because the pandemic is going to be with us for some time yet. We need to ensure that how the government behaves is is, is in a rights respecting, rights compliant compliant way. Yes, let's hope we find the right balance and checks. Thank you very much, Vicky. That was very informative. Mm. Now I'm going to ask you a few personal questions regarding your career. Let's start with what you do. Could you tell us more about your job? So currently I'm an independent human rights consultant. And as you mentioned in the intro, my, my area or of expertise is around prisoners' rights, prison reform and dignity behind bars. So as a consultant, um, I work with different organizations, be it the not-for-profit sector, be it intergovernmental organizations, on particular projects upon which I'm, I'm instructed to work. So currently I'm working alongside a, an NGO in Brussels and helping them to document human rights abuses and violations in, in Belarus. Mm-hmm. So now, can you tell us when did you decide that you wanted to work in the legal profession and what kind of study did you do to get into it? Well, I, I come from a family of lawyers, so I thought it might be a little bit inevitable that I that I went down the legal route, but um, decided really that I wanted to work in law. I suppose when I when I did my law degree, so I did I took a law degree, an undergraduate law degree, but only really enjoyed it when I could do my options. So when I studied international law and civil liberties and the European Convention on Human Rights, so that's I suppose when I really felt like I wanted to kind of work in the field of law. So I did the classic route. I did the law degree. I went to law school. I did my training contract, which was for two years and qualified as a solicitor, but knowing full well that my heart was in human rights work and that's really where I wanted to go. But I thought qualifying as a lawyer would stand me in good stead for a future. Yes, for sure. Finding one's passion greatly helps to become a committed specialist in what we do and remain motivated on the long term. Mm. Now, could you tell us what have been your greatest successes so far in your career and the most challenging hurdles you had to go through and how you've dealt with them? So I think thinking about my kind of long, varied career, um, the successes really was where I cut my teeth, which was on immigration and asylum law. I represented immigration and asylum seekers before uh, immigration courts here. And I think for me, my greatest successes have been securing those people asylum who came from whichever part of the world they did, they were in fear of their life. And I managed to get them a safe haven in the UK. So I think those have been a big success for me. Not many. I think I managed to get six people asylum in the six and a half years that I was an advocate. But I do think about those cases a lot, even now. In terms of the hurdles, I think one of the biggest hurdles has been just managing to sustain a career in the human rights sector. Because it's very uncertain, it's precarious, and it's hugely competitive. And so managing to sustain a career for 24 years, as I have done, I think has been a big hurdle for me. And how I've done it is by remaining optimistic and maybe blindly optimistic. But I, I have that. That's my, my nature, my personality. It's definitely a good thing to be positive and optimistic. <laughs> by networking, by sort of getting out there, talking to people, that's been a huge part of how I've managed to overcome that uncertainty And I think also just being open to whatever the universe brings my way. And sometimes you have to take sort of windy routes, but it gets you into interesting places. And 
not saying no actually to things as scary as it may seem and pushing you into a new area I think you have to do that because it, it it's all it all helps build you and enriches you as a as a well for me as a human rights professional I agree with you I really love this philosophy of trying not to say no to things I think he really opens a lot of doors a lot of opportunities now what is the moment in your life when you felt the proudest to be a lawyer so I think one of the moments was when I was at the foreign office I was a human rights advisor to the foreign office advising staff there on any human rights issues affecting British nationals detained overseas And I was sent to Japan to meet with the Foreign Office staff there, but also to meet with British nationals detained in prisons in Japan. And I remember distinctly meeting with a, an older woman who had health issues. She was in a wheelchair. She was suffering from dementia. And you can imagine being stuck in a prison in Japan um, would not be a, a, a very good experience for anybody, but, but she was particularly vulnerable. So I um, took it upon myself, or part of my role now, I should say, was to, to lobby on her behalf, lobby the Japanese authorities to ensure that she had the right medical care, that she was able to get language lessons because it's a hugely isolating experience being in a Japanese prison when you don't speak the language. So, so that, for me, felt like I was doing something hugely tangible, meaningful and important for that woman, that she was able to be in prison there but her rights are being respected so that that really resonates with me and, and I think about that case quite a lot actually. Well this is a lovely story that encapsulates well how important human rights lawyers are they do not always get a good reputation but this story shows that they can make a difference so we've arrived to my last question is there any piece of advice you would like to give aspiring lawyers listening to this podcast yeah so this is something that i do a lot so i work with and support and mentor young professionals looking to work in the human rights sector i think there are a couple of things to say on this point firstly be open and to to show a commitment to to the sector you know be it the human rights world be it whatever bit of the law that you want to be in show a commitment and an interest and an engagement in that sector I think, secondly, to say, take all the opportunities that come your way, because you never know where it might lead you and who you might meet on your journey. So be open to those opportunities. Something around personal branding and, and how you present yourself. For me, that's been very important and continues to be. But I think even at the early stages, think about, you know, who you are as a lawyer and, and how you present yourself. I mentioned also about networking. I think that starts right at the get go, right at the start particularly in the human rights sector, but any part of the law is, is that important piece about networking and, and talking to people and building a really good network of people. And then the final thing is don't give up. And I really mean that very sincerely because I think that's so important and it drives us and it keeps us going. It keeps me going so that we don't give up uh, because you will get to where you want to get to. Great advice. Now that we've reached the end of our podcast, could you tell our auditors how they can reach you? Yes, certainly. Well, the best way to reach me is through my website, which is www.vickypraise.com. I'm also on LinkedIn as Vicky Praise and on Twitter. And my handle is at Vicky Praise. So please feel free to, to contact me in, through any of those platforms. Well, Vicky, thank you very much for taking the time to prepare and share with us all the information we've been talking about today. This podcast has been highly educational. You've been deeply informative with your analysis and greatly inspiring with your experiences. You've been a fantastic guest. Thank you very much.
Thank you very much for, for inviting me onto the show. It's been a pleasure. The information contained on this episode is not to be interpreted as legal advice, but is provided for informative purpose only. Formal legal advice should be sought for any specific case. Our guests are presenting their personal opinions in the context of an informal conversation and do not speak on behalf of their employers, partners, contractors or clients. Thank you so much for listening to this edition of A Question of Law. Your engagement with the show is at the heart of its success. The show has already received a fantastic amount of support and I'm really thankful for this. But the challenge is to keep you, the audience, engaged and fascinated. So if you have appreciated the show, please let me know by tuning in for the next one, rating and sharing the episodes and leaving comments. So until the next question of law, keep well.